story is told of a man who was sprawled across three entire seats in a posh theater, something similar to the Orange County Performing Arts Center. An usher was made aware of it. He came by and uh, whispered to the man. He said, I'm sorry, sir, but you're only allowed one seat. The man groaned. He didn't budge. The usher became a little impatient and more forcefully said, Sir, if you don't get up from there, I'm going to have to call the manager. Again, the man just groaned and continued to lay across the seats. And it infuriated the usher to the point who turned. He marched briskly down the aisle, looked for his manager, came back with the manager. And both of them stood there side by side together and tried repeatedly to move the man from the seats, but with no success. Finally, they summoned the police. As the policeman arrived, upon his arrival, he began to survey the situation briefly. And they said, okay, buddy. I said, what's your name? The guy laying across the street said... Sam. I said, okay, Sam, where are you from, Sam? And with pain in his voice, and he, little strength he had left, he pointed up and he said, I'm from the balcony. <laughs> you know, and as I, as I uh, thought of that story, I was reminded of the danger of thinking that we know something without fully investigating the facts and the evidence. And I'm also reminded of an account that's found in our ongoing study in the book of Acts, chapter 20, which we'll get to in a minute. But uh, since Jim started this, I think I'll continue it. And it's a little participation at this point. How many, at one time or another, have found yourself bored to the point of sleep in church? (laughs) Now the dangerous question is, how many right now find yourself at that point? Bored to the point of sleep at church. How many of you found... Man, that's a lot of hands, by the way. Uh, How many of you have been coming here regularly? Good, nice. How many of you also have found that attending church has become somewhat routine? It's kind of like same place, same time, same thing. You know the old Wendy's commercials? I believe it what it was, you know. Just same place, same thing, same time, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's easy for that to happen. And if you've ever been there, you'll appreciate the story of a pastor who was dreaming he was delivering yet another boring sermon, only to wake up and discover he wasn't sleeping. (laughs) Now that's scary. You know, in many ways, it's kind of like driving. How many of you ever driven somewhere? Familiar route, and you find yourself, man, how'd I get here? Or I, I was going to a job site out in the valley one day, and it's like I wound up in Simi Valley. And I was like, I, don't, I, I have no idea where I was. I had no idea how I got to, I mean, I knew I drove there, obviously, you know, but I didn't know how I missed the off-ramp, where I was. I pulled over, and good thing I know how to read a map book and can try to figure out. And I was like, man, how would I get here? You know, that familiarity that you just kind of start to go through the motions, you know, and just life becomes so routine that you don't even realize, you know, what you're, what you're doing. I was reminded of that as I was thinking of all this. I was reminded on a more tragic note of the, uh, of the danger of falling asleep at the wheel. Uh, we had a friend that I had played ball with who had um, fallen asleep driving, uh, was killed and left a wife and a small child. Several years ago, I was asked to speak at a memorial service for a guy who was in one of our Bible studies who had fallen asleep going out to 395 toward Bishop. And uh, he was killed in that accident. You know, I thought how tragic it is physically to fall asleep at the wheel. And yet, there's also a spiritual sleep that is just as dangerous and sometimes even more dangerous than a physical danger of falling asleep at the wheel. And in Acts chapter 20, we find a situation that I've entitled, The Danger of Falling Asleep on the Seal. 
And uh, you have to read it to appreciate it. Some of you know that the passage, you know, might smile. Some may think that's pretty stupid. But, you know, it really doesn't matter. It gets hard to come up with creative titles every week. <laughs> so we're down to this. Acts chapter 20. Turn with me in your Bibles, and we'll take a look at the danger, the spiritual danger of falling asleep on the steel. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as, was about, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return through Macedonia. And while he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Phyrus, and by Aristarchus and Sycundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Timothy, Tychicus, and, and uh, Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and we came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread... Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a certain young man named Eutychus sitting on the window sill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, fell down from the third floor, and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. In this passage, Dr. Luke gives us a brief but very informative report of a local church, church service that's taken place in the city of Troas. And from it, we learn something of how they met and how they worshiped the Lord. And it's answers for many the reasons why we as a local church today follow a similar pattern. Many people that I talk to don't even know why do you go to church. I mean, why do we do the things that we do? What's the purpose behind all of it? What's the example or what's the model that we have? From this passage, we have some tremendous insight into those areas. And the first thing that I want you to take note of is the fact that the reason that they got together or the central purpose of their, reading together, of their meeting together was to gain a better understanding of the Lord's message for them and their life. The Lord's message was preeminent in everything that they did and the reason that they got together. Notice in verse 1 it says, And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples when he had exhorted them in verse 1, taking his leave of them. He departed to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. It says that the calm returned to Ephesus after the uproar had ceased. If you recall what had taken place, the word uproar is a very fitting description for what Demetrius the silversmith had created in the city earlier to this. And in fact, if you remember, there were 25,000 people who were rioting and chanting for two hours, great is our goddess uh, Artemis, and, uh, you know, and, and there was uh, much confusion and controversy, and, and there was basically, like I said, there was a riot. You know, Matthew used the same word to describe the disturbance that took place during Jesus' trial before Pilate. So you can get a feel for the kind of confusion and the chaos that's taking place in this particular time. Later, Luke will use it again in, in Acts 21 to describe another riot that will take place in the future when Paul visits the temple, visits the temple in Jerusalem. So in all three instances, the word describes an uncontrollable, hysterical mob, and Paul survived it. 
the point of all that is, is that he survived this, and after escaping such a traumatic event, most men would have been content to escape with their lives. But Paul had a deep concern for the body of Christ, for the believers, no matter where he went. He understood that there was a purpose in everything that God allows to happen. He, he praised God in all situations. And uh, in the situation that we have here, we're told that his last or departing... You know, if you ever thought about, what would you say to a person if you can only tell them one last thing before you would leave? Kind of last words. The last words that you would say to somebody that you thought you would never see again. Think about the, the impact that that would make. The last words. I've thought about that. The last words that I would say to my family, the last words that I would say to my friends, the last words I would say to anybody. And the only thing I keep coming back to is, you know what? Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay in the Word of God. Stay focused on Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He'll set your path straight. Paul, as he gathered the disciples together, we're told that his famous last words or his pep talk everywhere that he went was the same. And that was to teach the Word of God. To preach the Word of God. To proclaim the truth of God's Word. And in fact, the reason for it is very simple. If you turn ahead to Acts chapter 20, which we'll look at next time, next week, he recognized and was well aware as he, would, as he would warn them, the leaders of the Ephesian church, of the danger that lay ahead. And here's what he had to say, Acts 20, verse 26. He said, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. Be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, from your own, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. What he's saying was, remember the example that I laid out that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears, and we'll get into this in more detail, but his warning was very simple. I'm warning you that what lies ahead is a very dangerous situation, that you will have people even among yourselves who will try to keep you from the Word of God, who will try to deceive you and mislead you and take you in other directions. But he said the only answer to that is to say, focus on the Word of God and the objective standard of God's truth. It is the anchor by which everything that we decide to do, every decision that we make, every direction that we're going to take, it is the anchor we have to come back to because it is objective, it is not subjective, it is not emotional, it is not feel-good, it is none of those things. It is the objective standard of God's Word. It is the anchor for the life of the believer. It's important that we recognize that. Notice what it says, that he exhorted them, and then we're told he gave them much, much exhortation. Much exhortation with the word of God. You know, unfortunately, Paul's commitment to proclaim the truth of God is not vogue today. You know, preaching that exhorts from the word no longer holds the central place it held in the early church. They met for the purpose of gathering around to hear what message God had for them. 
that God would reveal himself through his word, that God would reveal his will through his word, so that we know as we are, are, are given the word of God and his will is revealed to us, so that it's not my will be done, but God's will be done. Our desires change, our understanding changes, and it's only through the word of God that we even begin to know who God is. It's only through the word of God that we can know about sin and judgment and God's plan and, and, and his, uh, his love for man and sending Christ into the world so that he would die upon a cross and that three days later he would be raised up from the dead. It's the Word of God that tells us all of that. Without the Word of God, we know none of that. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It is the the anchor in the life of the believer. And he's saying with much exhortation. You know, unfortunately today it's not vogue. And, And I'll talk a minute more about that. But in my experiences dealing with people who come from all over the world through athletic or professional sports, I deal with people who literally are from all over the world. And there's one thing that I found to be common among every person that God brings into Linda and I's life, and that is that there is a very serious malnutrition as far as an understanding of God's truth. There is a hunger for the Word of God, and there is a spiritual vacuum that only God's Word can fill. Peter's exhortation when he says that like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. There is a direct correlation between a person's spiritual growth and the amount of time that they spend in the word of God. There is no way you can get around that. If you're not in the word of God, you cannot grow spiritually. Plain and simple, it doesn't get any clearer than that. And so when I see people who don't understand the very basics of God, I understand very clearly at that point they've never been exposed to sound biblical doctrine and teaching. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequately equipped to do the work that God has called us to do. There is, a, there is an ignorance of God's word in our culture today, and it is evident by the fact that not many people understand God's word. And what has happened, the tragedy of all of this, the church has abandoned the preaching and teaching of God's Word in a collective way in general, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I want you to see the exa- and examine the biblical record as far as preaching and teaching truth is concerned. Immediately after Paul's conversion, the first thing he began to do was proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God, Acts chapter 9, verse 20. In Acts 11.20, it describes the ministry of the men of of Cyprus and Cyrena who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. All the way through the book of Acts, you will find that the ministry that we see very clearly is that the church continued to preach the gospel, to proclaim the truth of God's word. And it's no coincidence because all that the disciples did was pick up where Jesus left off. Jesus Christ was the greatest preacher and proclaimer of God's truth that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark records that after John the Baptist was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities for which I have also been sent for this purpose. Listen carefully. Preaching has rightly held a central place in the life of the true church throughout the ages. The Reformation, which recovered the faith, was initiated and spread largely through the revival of preaching like men, men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox. 
At the very core of the great strength of 17th century uh, Puritanism was an emphasis on sound biblical preaching. The great awakening of the 18th century was led through preaching by men such as George Whitefield, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards. The 19th century saw great evangelists, D.L. Moody, other preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Joseph Parker, Alexander McLaren. And I am just interested to see how history will record the 19th and the 20th and the 21st centuries. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones concludes this way when he says, The decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching has declined. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and I will show you in a nutshell how dangerous it is for the church to abandon the preaching of the Word of God as preeminent or the central message of the purpose in which we get together. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verses 11 through 16. It says, And God gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I want you to follow very logically the danger in abandoning biblical, biblical teaching and proclaiming of God's truth, the whole counsel of God. What happens is this. When pastors or teachers neglect their responsibility for what? The equipping of the saints in verse 12, then the saints cannot do what? The work of service. And if the saints can't do a work of service, as a result, the building up of the body of Christ doesn't take place. The disastrous consequences include this, true unity, a knowledge of the Son of God, spiritual maturity, and on top of that, then we are tossed to and fro, deceived by the winds of doctrine or craftiness or deceit that comes along, and the bottom line of all of it is, is that we lack maturity. There's no clear direction, there's no clear vision, everything someone says sounds good, every opinion is equally valid, and on and on and on it goes. So the questions that, the question that, I, the questions that I've asked myself if I've gone through this is this, what is the answer to a lack of true unity in the body of Christ? What is the answer to a, an, in, an incompetent or imperfect knowledge of Jesus Christ? What is the answer to a lack of spiritual maturity in the body collectively and we as individuals? What is the answer to being spiritually deceived? The answer is the Lord's message, the Word of God. That is the answer, the teaching and preaching of the Bible, the Word of God, brings about true spiritual unity, brings about a perfect knowledge of Christ, brings about spiritual maturity, and brings about a maturity that doesn't allow us to fall into spiritual danger, deceit, or traps. The biblical preaching of the Word of God is the purpose by which every church 
throughout generations has gathered together. It is central. It is preeminent. It is the reason that we come together to hear what God has to say to each one of us. I will guarantee you there is not a time where I prepare to share that God hasn't already spoke with me, dealt with me in these areas before I can stand boldly and tell you what God clearly reveals in His will. You know, Ezra said it best when he said he dedicated his life to studying the Word of God, then to practicing the Word of God, and then finally he would teach the Word of God. But that is the only order in which it works. You cannot stand boldly, publicly, and proclaim the truth of God's Word if you are not already applying it in your life. That's just the reality of it. So when Paul, as he gathered the disciples together, his final pep talk was always this. Preach the Word of God. If the Word of God is the answer to all the things that I just shared, then why is the Word of God the first thing that's thrown out the window when we entertain other things that come along the, down the pipe? The first reason is this. I believe it's because the, the authority, the inerrancy of the Word of God has, has been attacked for the past generation. There is a widespread assault on the authority of God's Word. It has only been in the last 30 or 40, maybe 50 years that God's Word has come under attack as far as its authority is concerned. If the world around us can minimize the authority of God's Word saying, hey, it's just another book, it's just another opinion, it's just another way of thinking about things and can eliminate it as being God's message to mankind, then you know what? Then anything that comes along is equally as valid. The authority of God's Word. But don't ever mistake what other people say about the Word of God than what Jesus said about the Word of God and what the Word of God says about the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Paul's exhortation was firmly based on the authority of Scripture. When he talked to those in Acts 17, verse 2, he said, According to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. To the Corinthian church he said this, I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He goes on to say, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He instructed a young pastor, Timothy, to give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. For all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequately equipped, exactly what Ephesians 4 says, so that we can be equipped to do the works of service that God has called us to perform even before the foundation of the earth. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ quoted scripture. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he quoted the word of God. Everywhere that he went and he taught and he proclaimed truth, he quoted the Old Testament scripture. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, just as, he said, well, then why did God allow Moses, you know, to, to declare, declare a decree of divorce? And he said, hey, Moses, Moses was permitted. God didn't command him to. And here's the reasons. And he quoted the word of God again. You know, Jesus Christ looked at the word of God as that which it is, God's words in written form to mankind, to reveal himself, to reveal his plan, to reveal sin, to reveal judgment, to reveal the consequence of a rebellion against God, and also the redemption of God. As we turn to the word of God, we find out that God loves us anyway. And he sent Jesus Christ into the earth, onto this earth to die on the cross in our place for our sins. And he rose again from the dead three days later, and forever, whoever would believe upon him would be saved. This past week, God reminded me again of this truth, the simplicity of the message, and that's this. I had a Bible study I did with the, the Ducks hockey team. And we had six guys that were there in a room. And, and, and afterwards, one of the gals called and said, Man, what, what, did you, what did you talk about in chapel today? 
I said, why? She said, man, my husband came home, and man, he was so excited, he was fired up. She said, every one of the guys said they ran out of time, they wished we would have had more time, they talked about it all day. So he came home, he grabbed some tapes that he had, he took them on the road with him. And you know what I did? I took a copy of John chapter 3, I laid it on my copy machine at my office, I made copies, I handed it to each one of them, and I explained the text to them. That's all that I did. Because it's the Word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, separate bone from marrow. It's God's Word, the power of the Word. The Word of God is the Spirit of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The simplicity of explaining to people who have never been exposed to the Word of God, I mean, if, if, if that doesn't affirm and confirm once again... The reality that we have been entrusted with the greatest message that's been given to man. We talk, we hear of missionaries who spend 30, 40, 50 years to translate the Word of God into 30, 40 languages. Why do we do all of that? Why do we go through such great effort to send people all over the world? I'm talking the church collectively in general. Why does the church send people all over the world to translate the Word of God in other languages? And then we become guilty of not even using it to people God brings into our presence. We've got to ask some questions here. Paul, the last words were, preach the word in season and out. Don't neglect the public reading of the scripture. The word of God is the power of God to change lives. There's nothing that I can say, nothing that you can say. We can't persuade people. We can't do a song and a dance. I can do a couple of jokes. But you know what? What's, that doesn't change anything. The reality of all of this, why? Why does the word of God get thrown out the door? Because the enemy knows that it is the powerful weapon of choice of our God and Savior. The second reason that people don't want to study the Bible is because there have been those who have manipulated the Bible for their own personal benefit. I saw a Dateline thing the other night about a pastor in Pennsylvania who took the word of God and manipulated it for his own purposes. And once he got a following and developed a following, then he began to extort and basically steal money from people. Ultimately, ended up in a sexually immoral relationship with his secretary. And so the world looks at it and says, well, if you teach the Bible and you live like that, th there must be something wrong with the Bible. You're out there Bible thumping and, and, and yet, you know, your life is just filthy. And if that's what you stand for and that's what you believe in and that's what it's all about, there must be something wrong with the Bible. And then there are those who manipulate it to say what they want to say because they have an agenda of where they want to head and their, and their opinions and their plans become on equal par with the authoritative word of God. In a lot of places, you know what? That opinion of, of people is even greater than the authority of God. And then you wonder why the world says, you know what? I don't have any interest in reading the Bible. If, that's what, if, you, if you represent the Bible and you say this is what the Bible says and this is how you live, you know what? I, I don't have any interest in that. You know, we've been encouraged to feed the flock not to fleece the flock. We've been encouraged to encourage the word of encourage believers and, and the lost through the word of God, not to beat them over the head with what the word of God has to say. Yes, we're to preach the full counsel of God. Yes, there is such a thing as sin. Yes, there is such a thing as God's judgment. Yes, there is such a place as hell for those who continue to rebel against God. And on the other hand, yes, there is redemption. Yes, there is forgiveness. Yes, there is a God who loves us and sent Christ to this earth to die for us, for all who would believe. Yes, there are these things, but it's the balance. It's the full counsel of God. You can't, you can't teach some of it and not all of it. There's no need for a Savior if you don't know you're lost. There's no need to be forgiven if you don't know you've offended God. 
So you've got to preach sin first before a person can come to repentance. Don't ever forget that a pastor or a teacher's personal failure does not disqualify the Lord's message. John MacArthur writes the following in his book, Ashamed of the Gospel, and he believes this is the greatest decline of biblical preaching in our world today. Attempting to be user-friendly churches, attempting to be user-friendly, churches have jettisoned preaching in favor of movies, drama, concerts, testimonies of Christian superstars, and other forms of entertainment. And no wonder, since preaching the biblical truths of sin, judgment, God's sovereignty, and salvation is decidedly not user-friendly, In a philosophy of ministry where pragmatism reigns supreme, the large crowds drawn by such alternative worship services serve to validate them. Such short-sighted thinking, however, misses the point. The problem with churches is not poor attendance. The problem is poor spiritual health. And what people need most is not to be entertained, but to be taught the truths of God's Word. Now, understand and listen carefully here. There is nothing wrong with different methods in reaching people for Christ. The point, I'm going to make this as clear as I can, the point is this, that none of those methods are to replace God's chosen method, which is the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. They should never usurp God's preeminence in His Word as far as the central reason the church gathers together. There is nothing wrong with movies. There is nothing wrong with dramas. Oh, I will say this, that if we're going to do things of that nature as a church, they should be biblically accurate. You know what I'm saying? That, 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 you know, they should be biblically accurate. And so they reflect you know, what, what, the, what the Bible has to say as far as truth is concerned. When we sing songs, they should be biblically accurate. And you know what, what's interesting is I just realized, and I had a conversation about it, and I, I forgot all about it until I, I heard it again, you know, where we sing a chorus, the, righteous, the, the, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run into it and are saved. Okay, let's get something straight. We're not righteous... And unless the word is the righteous run into it and are safe, then that is not accurate. The righteous don't run anywhere and are saved. The reason we need saved is because we're not righteous. No, there's not one who of us are righteous. So we got to get ahead of the, get that overhead and change the word from safe to safe. Or the unrighteous run into it and they are saved. You know, and we, and we do this, and I'm not being critical of it. I mean, it's just, it's just, I just saw that, and so you know, you know, you know what I'm saying. So anyway, the point is, is that we just we, we just we just need to be more careful and more and more thoughtful about what it is that we present to people. So anyway, um, where was I? Oh, here this is this is Isaiah fifty five eleven. So shall my word that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I have sent it. When God speaks, nothing stays the same. Isn't that true? Think about it. Throughout history, when God speaks, nothing stays the same. And then God said, let there be light. And you know what? Nothing was ever the same again. 
And then God said, you know what, this, that, and the other thing. Every time God said something, it came to fruition, and never was anything ever the same again. When God speaks, nothing stays the same. When Jesus said to the leper, hey, you know what, you are healed, he was healed, nothing was the same again. When he said to the blind person, you can see, he could see, nothing was the same again. When he said to the lame, you can walk, you can walk, nothing was the same again. When he said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. He didn't have to say it more than once. And it was a good thing he used the word Lazarus first. Think about it. They thought that was really something. If he had said, hey, why don't you all come out? Man alive. You know what? It was, it was you know, pretty impressive that Lazarus came out. And anytime God speaks, nothing stays the same. And when God speaks to us through his word, nothing should ever stay the same. When we leave here, Having heard the word of God, we should leave here and nothing should ever be the same again in our life. For God should convict us of action. We need to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. The reason people fall asleep in church is because blah, 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 blah. I heard it all before. Well, then live it out. Live it. Oh, man, you start living it. It's going to be unbelievably exciting for you. You will never get bored again in the word of God. Put to practice what you learn, and it won't be same place, same thing. Oh, book of Acts. When are we going to be done with the book of Acts? It, you know, oh my goodness, we've been here for a year going through the book of Acts. Hey, well, it took more than a year for them to live out the book of Acts. All right. All right. Second thing. Oh, I'm running out of time. Yay! <laughs> Yay, the guy who did the overhead says, hallelujah. (laughs) Number two, what else did we learn? We learned about the Lord's day. Notice, go back to chapter 20, verse 7. It says the reason they got together was it was the first day of the week. It was the Lord's day. Do you ever wonder why you get together and come to church on Sunday? Here's why. It's the first day of the week. It's the Lord's day because on it, the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead. One of the most compelling arguments in sport of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the abrupt change in worship on the part of Jews who for centuries and generations met and kept the Sabbath holy. When they came to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they no longer met on the Sabbath, but they met on the first day of the week because that is the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. One of the most compelling arguments for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that believers began to meet on Sunday instead of Saturday. Also, the church was born, as we learned in our study, on Sunday. That's the reason we meet on Sunday. It's the first day of the week. As time went on, believers moved away from the Mosaic uh, calendar and developed their own pattern of worship. Ignatius wrote in the second century, let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's day as a festival, the resurrection day, the queen and chief of all the days. Justin Martyr wrote this later on in the second century, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in countries gather together in one place and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets, the word of God is read as long as time permits. How about that? They even had time constraints then. I guess the sundial, you know, told them when it was time to go. Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. Tertullian in the third century 
happens as to those to whom Sabbaths are strange. The reason we meet on Sunday. Every Sunday that you get up to come to church, every Sunday should be a reminder of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. His sacrifice on the cross. We should never get bored with that. That should never become commonplace. That should never get stale in our life. When you get up on Sundays from now on, remember, this is the day that Jesus Christ conquered death. This is the day that He conquered sin. This is the day because of Him that we have life who believe in Him, that He is alive, that we are alive spiritually. This is the day. Sunday should never be commonplace to anyone who recognizes this is the reason why we get together and we praise God because it's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. A second thing that we find in verses 7 and 8 is the fact that they gather together. On the first day of the week, we gather together to break bread tending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight, and there was many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. We gather together because God requires that his people gather together to praise his name, to study his word. And on top of all of that, we gather together because we are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing, dawning that Jesus Christ will return. The purpose of getting together, I mean, look around you. We, are, we can get so discouraged during the week. Oftentimes God has placed us in difficult environments with difficult people who oppose God and the things of God. And we see it and it's played out before us all the time. But you know what? One thing that we have in common when we come together, we can look around and we can say, I'm not in this alone. I'm not going through what I'm going through by myself. There are godly people in every environment you can think of that God has strategically placed. And when we come together, we're to encourage each other, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to remind us that, you know what? We're not alone. They gathered together in an upper room. They met in houses, in homes, personal residences. They met on the third floor of a particular house that we'll see here. And it's important to understand that. They met together. And in fact, it wasn't until the early part of the second century that there's even any historical record, archaeologically, of a central place where Christians came together as far as a church building was concerned. They met in small groups or whatever size of the room that would accommodate them. We know in Pentecost there was 120 people gathered in an upper room. It was a big room. But you know what? We got 700 people here. It was nothing compared to you know, what we have as far as buildings are concerned. But the reality is that that's where they met. Another thing that we recognize is that they got together for what was called the Lord's Supper. There was two things that were, were brought up here. One is that there was a love feast or what was called maybe a potluck. See, you know, the Christian faith has a foundation. Have you ever noticed that any time Christians get there, we're always eating. I mean, we're always eating. It's like, hey, come on, bring some food. Let's eat. You know, it's just part of who we are, you know. And, and I love that. You know, it's one of the greatest things about knowing Christ, that every time we get together, we eat. You know, it's awesome. You know, but, but there was a love feast. They got together and they ate. You know why they got together to eat? Because they met on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. And guess what? They all had work. Let me, talk, let me just share with you something about, a little bit about commitment. These people worked all day long. Then they came together at night to hear the word of God. They had tough days. I, you know, I wonder, it would be interesting, how many of us would be committed to go to a Bible study at night after we've worked all day long? I had a hard day. Linda and I have been involved in enough small groups to know that, you know, it's inevitable that, you know, a half hour before everyone's supposed to get together, the phone starts to ring. Uh, you know, I just want to tell you, I had a long, tough day. Oh, that's interesting, because I've been sitting around, and Linda's been feeding me grapes and fanning me with a newspaper all day. I, I can't relate to that long, tough day. Really. So, you never want to be in one of our small groups. 
Oh, uh, uh, we understand. We'll pray for you. <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> well, pray for us that I have a better attitude the next time you call. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, see, you all been there. You know how it is. <laughs> but they met after they worked all day. So they were hungry, so they ate. And that is the biblical explanation for donut holes and coffee. Thank you very much. In case you were wondering, that's why we got them back there. You got to take care of the physical needs before you can feed the spiritual. You know, and that's the bottom line of all that. So there you go. That was pretty deep. Um, that was the love feast. But a more serious note, they also celebrated communion. And that was a reminder of what Jesus Christ had done for them. They never wanted to forget that. We as a church, first Sunday of every month in the worship service, we have communion. The purpose of communion is to be a reminder as many times or as often as we do this, celebrate. It is a reminder of what the Lord Jesus Christ did on our behalf. Who, as was mentioned, who despised the shame and endured the pain for the joy that was set before him. We should never do that commonplace. We should never get bored or take that for granted. We should always have in our mind when we celebrate the Lord's Supper exactly the price that Jesus Christ exerted on our behalf. In fact, many of these people would do it on a regular basis, even at home. And I would encourage you as a family to do the same thing. It's not limited to a church building. It's not limited to a certain place. You have small groups, you should, have, you should celebrate communion. Even in your homes and in your families, it would be something that I think we should challenge each other to celebrate communion because it's not regulated or restricted when it can take place. All the Bible says is, and as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of Him. So we look at this and we come to what I would call the last thing that is shown to us, and that is the Lord's power. And the Lord's power is demonstrated to us in a rather unfortunate incident. And uh, yet at the same time as we look at this, we realize that the early church met together because the Lord's message was preeminent. It was central. The whole counsel of God that was taught sin, judgment, repentance, forgiveness, equipping of saints for work of service, it was all there. They met on the first day of the week because it was the day of resurrection. It was the day the church was born. It's a reminder that the old had passed away and all the new has become reality. We, we learned about the people that were there. They were gathered together. And you know what's fascinating too is that there were a group of people. They were all one in Christ and yet they came from different social standings. They came from different economic standings. They came from different racial backgrounds. And yet they got together and they ate together. Do you know what a testimony that was for the world for a slave to sit with his servant and share a meal together, for a man to sit with a woman, for a rich person to sit with a poor person as far as material goods were concerned. The church gathered them all together and they were one in Christ and it was a testimony to the community. You think about this. When people say, uh, well, why, you want to do this on, on the weekend or can you do this on Sunday or whatever, you say, you know what? No, I'm going to church on Sunday. And I say, going to church? Why would you go to church? See, it, it automatically generates questions that we can now have an opportunity to share with others. Well, why do you go to church? I don't know, because I have to. You know, my wife makes me, my husband makes me, you know, because I'm dating this gal or this guy. You know, whatever. The, you know, it's like, hey, you know what? We go to church because of all the things that we've just talked about. Because it's our time to gather together to worship the Lord for what He's done in our life. It's a reminder of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection. Because all, all things pass away, all things become new. Well, you know, I've never been to church. You've never gone to church? Well, I did. You know what? I have tried going to church before, but it was boring. 
Well, you know what? Why don't you come with me? Because it ain't boring. Oh, if that's the only reason you don't go, well, come with us. But, you know, I'll guarantee you this, that people who come to a church that's boring are not in a big hurry to invite people to come with them. Unless you don't like them. But if you love people, you want them to come because you can't wait to hear what God has to say because when God speaks, your life is never the same. So you invite people. It's a great opportunity. What are you doing Sunday? I'm going to church. You want to come? I don't know. Do I? Absolutely. Pick you up. They got donut holes. Okay, now. Oh, all right, here we go. You ready? Here's the Lord's power demonstrated in the, in the life of a fellow by the name of Eutychus. This is beautiful. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. There was a certain young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill. Eutychus was caught sleeping on the sill. Sinking into a deep sleep, and as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, fell down from the third floor, picked up dead. Well, that would just about break up a Bible study, wouldn't it? You know? <laughs> I feel sorry for this guy. Here's an example of what so many of us fear, being caught sleeping on the sill or being caught sleeping in church. I feel sorry for him. First of all, he fell asleep in the middle of one of the all-time greatest preacher's sermons in his farewell sermon. Fell asleep then. You know, I kind of go, hey, if people fell asleep when Paul preached, you know, I can make people fall asleep. So that's the first part. The second thing I feel sorry for him is because he ends up dying as a result. All right, that's kind of bad. And the third thing is, Luke was there to write it and preserve it for all eternity. You know, we get to enjoy this, right? Hey, did you hear about Eutychus? Man, I can just hear you and everybody's like, oh, man, the dude fell asleep. Now, out of fairness, let's examine the facts and we'll not be guilty of jumping to conclusions. You know what I'm saying? Number one, the place was packed. Number two, Eutychus, according to the word where it says a young man, uh, meant that he was between the ages of eight and 14. He was a servant who worked all day long. So we know that for a fact. It was hot. It was stuffy. They were on the third floor of a building. So all the heat rose. There was no electric fans. There was no air conditioning. It says that there were many lamps, meaning the place was lit up, indicating that they weren't ashamed to meet together as believers, number one, because everybody in the community knew what was going on there. But number two, there was another important reason, because those oil torches are like those tiki lamps, put off fumes and smoke. Now you combine that with a prolonged his message until midnight... And wham! You know what I'm saying? The tenses of the Greek verb indicate that Eutychus was gradually overcome by sleep. The dude fought it as long as he could. He probably even moved to the windowsill so he could get some fresh air. Or he was so tired from working all day that he got there early so he could sit by the window and get the good seat. It's kind of like you people way up in the balcony. You hurry up. Hi. You hurry up, you get back in the back because you want to get out of here as fast as you can. The people sit up front, they're all usually the late people. So, so it says that he fell. Hey, hey now, it's, it's, oh, this right, it's an uproar. Remember that? He fell into a deep sleep. Can you imagine? And it's like, you know, the flames are going and, and it's hot and stuffy and you worked all day long and you just see this. That's a word we get actually in English for hypnosis. Man, the dude was hypnotized. He was, it was in a hypnotic trance. He just... I can just see it. Because I see some of you do this on a regular basis. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's like, you ever listen to somebody... It was like, what was that show he used to be on? 
Um, oh, it was a teacher that, man, the guy was great. He had the most monotonous, just stereotypical, boring voice you'd ever have for a teacher where you just kind of go, oh, you know. <laughs> but it was like, this would make a great CSI story, you know. Dr. Luke, you know, kind of giving all the details of why this guy fell asleep, you know. But he fell asleep. Well, what happened? He fell and he died. Man, that's, that's not good. But the good news was that Paul, okay, hang on, they all ran down, the dude was dead, Doc Luke knows because he's a doctor, guy was dead, Paul went down, fell on him, just like Elijah and Elisha, fell over top of him, embraced him and said, don't be troubled, his life is in him, and there was a miraculous uh, giving of his life back to him, gave his life back to him, he was picked up, Paul went down, embraced him, don't be troubled, it's the same word, don't get in an uproar over this. You know, his life is in him. And when he'd gone back up and broken bread and eaten, he talked with them. It was kind of like intermission. But at the same time, it was like they were greatly comforted by what they had just seen happen. Greatly comforted. Can you imagine? They were greatly comforted by what was taking place there, the miraculous thing that had taken place so long. And as we look at all this, in closing, I've got to ask some questions, and that is this. What can we learn from all this? Number one, before you say it, don't talk so long. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> The mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. You know what I mean? So I've got to remember that. I try to keep that in mind. Don't talk so long. But I'm thinking, man, the guy talked until midnight. Then after the dude fell and died and God gave his life back to him, they said, okay, got back up, got back up, said, we got some more stuff to talk about. And then he spoke from midnight till 7 in the morning. And then those people had to go to work. I don't understand them. They're strange. 45 minutes, an hour, and we're like, hey, dude, is your watch broke? It's like, you know, I got a place to go, things to do. That was good enough. When God speaks, nothing's ever the same. And he, he, couldn't, he couldn't teach enough. He couldn't preach enough. He couldn't, he couldn't tell them enough about God's word and the life-changing words that they'll hear. Having an opportunity to teach and speak on a regular basis, I'm reminded at any moment there are those in danger of falling asleep. I have seen and I have heard from you people. I have seen people bump their head on the pew in front of them. I have seen people drop off to the side. You ever see that? And then they wake up and they got that little drool thing going for them. You know, I've seen that. You've told me about that. It's great. You know, I, you know, drop the Bible. You ever see that? It's like a lot of times I'll read in bed at night. You know, when I'm reading, I was like, well, I'm going to get one of those bookmarks and say, this is where I was when I fell asleep. See, that would be good for people to read in bed. The other thing I like to do, too, is i got the channel changer going for me, and i got to hold it at a certain angle because of this big down comforter Linda asked on the bed, like we live in Nome, Alaska. And uh, so we got this thing, and I can't see the TV, so i got to, I got to go up with the thing, you know what I mean? So it's like, and I push that thing, and then a lot of times I'll fall asleep, and I'll drop it on her. That... So you go, what was that? Nothing. No, wait, wait. No. And so, you know, I've been there. You've been there. You know, we've, I've heard people snoring. You've laughed. I've seen people laughing in the back going, hey, did you hear the guy snoring this morning? You know, no, not really, but I'm sure you'll tell me about it, you know. Or, or some of you out there going, you know, just so hot. You know, I've seen that. You know, and I can have sympathy for those who have a tough time staying awake at church. I'd have a lot more sympathy if this was an evening Bible study after you worked all day. Um, but since you had a chance to actually sleep... The night before, you might want to go to bed a little earlier. You know what I'm saying? Just a little practical. Things might want to take into consideration. You know what I mean? Oh, i got to get up early tomorrow. Well, then go to bed a little earlier. Or eat a lot more donut holes and drink a lot more of that coffee. So, but somehow or another. But, you know, I understand that. You know, we're all in danger of falling asleep. You know, warm building, contagious yawning, all that kind of stuff. You know, certainly not a boring speaker, but we know what the other stuff is. You know, but, you know, it's kind of like we need to understand. This guy was a young man. And you know what excites me about him, though? 
He had a desire to hear the Word of God. He was there. Fell asleep, but he was there. Fought it as hard as he could, but he was there. He had a hunger for the Word of God. And so I get more excited now when people come, even if you're sleeping, because I know that, you know what, you're here for whatever reason that it is. And you know what? And God's Word accomplishes the purposes for which it was sent forth. So I'm excited. Falling asleep doesn't bother me. It can happen for a number of reasons, good or bad. You know, but what concerns me in closing is this. Are the number of folks who warm a pew on the Lord's day who are physically awake but spiritually asleep. More concerning, spiritually dead. For years I went to church, hated it because I thought it was boring. And the reason it was boring was because I didn't understand anything that was going on. And the reason I didn't understand anything that was going on is because I was dead in my sins. But when I came to confess my sin and repent and turn from sin and turn to God and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of my sin, and I was, as the Bible says, born from above or born again, the Spirit of God was instilled in me and I had the mind, I had the Spirit of God that understands the mind of God. I had a desire to do what was right before God. I had a hunger for the Word of God because it was like God's love letter written just for me. And as I began to apply the things that I learned, I saw God working in my life. And it no longer became boring to me because I understood what God had to say because the Spirit lives within me. Some of you are bored in church because you don't understand what's going on. You can't understand it. And the reason you can't is because you're dead in your sins. And you need to turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. You need to be born again. You need the Spirit of God to indwell you. Then the words of God will make sense to you. But until then, church will always be boring unless you go somewhere where they try to entertain you. But if they're preaching and teaching the Word of God wherever you go, it won't make any sense and you won't even like it or appreciate it until you come to faith in Christ. So if church is boring to you, I challenge you to consider when were you born again? When have you trusted in Christ? If you've never have, do so today, for the day is the day of the Lord. Trust in Christ as your Savior right here, right now. And the Bible says old things pass away and all things become new. You have an interest now in spiritual things because the Spirit of God lives within you. The second thing is there are believers who lost their first love. And so therefore God's Word becomes boring. You have come to a crossroads in your life and you chose to rebel against God and you chose to sin and walk from Him like the prodigal son. And now the Word of God is boring to you. There's no freshness, there's no newness, there's no revelation from God because it's time for you to wake up and to repent and to confess your sin and to turn back to God so that your relationship with Him can be restored. It was David who said the most incredible words when he said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, the joy of my walk with you, the joy of the intimacy and fellowship with you, Lord. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Some of you are bored because you're living in sin and you need to confess it and you need to turn to God and He will restore the joy of your relationship with Him. And others are bored because everything's become too familiar. Same place, same time, same thing, same song, same books, same study, blah, blah. Blah, blah. And to you I say this. It is time to determine to consciously and deliberately participate with all your being in the corporate worship of the Lord. To think about the words of the songs that you sing. To think about the reason that you get up on Sundays and come to church. 
to think about the fact that when God speaks through his word, nothing ever stays the same. To sit and to listen to the word of God as if God was standing before you, which he is, and he's speaking to you on a one-on-one personal basis, which he does, because it is a love letter to God's people so that he will reveal himself to you so that you will know how to live in a manner that's worthy of your calling. We should never, ever become bored in the worship of our Savior. And the only time we do, it's like driving to a destination and not even thinking about what we're doing. It's time that we consciously and deliberately begin to think about why we're here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer ran a seminary in Nazi Germany that was not approved by the state. He was critical, but intelligent man. But in his homiletics class, he always laid down his paper and pencil, opened his Bible, and listened to the students' sermons, no matter how poor or unskilled they were. He felt that the preaching of God's word ought to be received as if he were listening to God himself. And that is how we should listen. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians 5.14, Wake up, you who are sleeping, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Don't get caught sleeping on the sill. Pay attention and understand, and God will set you free. Father, thank you for your word. We just thank you for your love for each one of us. God, help us to not be bored with you. Help us not to take into commonplace the things that you have done for us. May we never take into commonplace the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. Lord, may we always participate in a manner that's worthy of you giving you all the praise and glory as we worship you with our lips and song, as we worship you as we listen to your word, and as we live it out in our lives, a powerful testimony to the world around us. We are salt and we are light. God, help us to live it out. And may we never again in our life say that we are bored with spiritual things. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.